Well, we enter this morning a sobering section in Matthew. There's been, I guess, plenty of sobering sections, but it continues. And what we see this morning is, in some ways, the pinnacle of opposition that has been building in the book of Matthew. Uh, we're in chapters 11 and 12 in Matthew, and it's this section of narrative where the story is continuing. And the story is continuing, and what we see is doubt on the part of John the Baptist. Chapter 11, is, are you the one who is to come, or are we to wait for another? Yes, I'm the Messiah, John. And then on the part of the crowds, Jesus addresses the crowds and even his home base of operations, those who, those who have seen all of his mighty miracles and, and they haven't believed, they haven't repented. Because that's always been the message, repent for the kingdom of heaven has drawn near. And then, so we've seen Jesus' condemnation of that. And we've seen Jesus go head-to-head at the beginning of chapter 12 with the Pharisees over the interpretation of the Sabbath. And we've seen by 12.14 that the die is cast, the Pharisees, because Jesus has opposed their authority, because he's opposed their interpretation of the law, that they're going to destroy him. They're contemplating murder on the Sabbath. And interestingly, like we saw last week, Jesus withdraws, right? He, his life is in imminent danger. He knows that, so he withdraws strategically. And many follow him still. The crowds are still there and following him, and he's healing them. But we saw last week there's a strategy to this. Jesus is seeking to fulfill what prophet Isaiah was saying, right? The Messiah, the, spirit, the servant in Isaiah, the messianic king, the one who's going to die in behalf of his people, keeps a low profile. And so by Jesus keeping a low profile, even by withdrawing from the attacks of the Pharisees, he's fulfilling Scripture because he's going to want be the one to bring justice to victory. And he's going to do it by the Spirit empowering him in what he is doing. And that idea of Jesus being empowered by the Spirit is, again, at play and at focus in the section we're looking at today where he once again goes head-to-head with the Pharisees. And so as we enter this section this morning, here's the main idea that Matthew has for his audience and for us, and it's this, beware of slandering God by not aligning with Jesus as the Spirit-empowered King. Beware of slandering God by not aligning with Jesus as the Spirit-empowered King. What we're going to see is there's, a, kind of a, there's an initial setup, another healing that sets up for a big old discussion by Jesus in this, and a sobering one at that. So let's look and turn our attention to the text we first see in verses, 30, uh, in verses 22 through 29 that the Spirit empowering Jesus is clearly holy, not satanic. Spirit empowering Jesus is clearly holy, not satanic. Verse 22, then, so sometime after, that's all that then communicates, is he's withdrawn, he's withdrawn from the Pharisees, but then a demon-oppressed man or a demon-possessed man who's blind and mute was brought to him. And he healed him so that the man, the mute man, spoke and saw. So this kind of continues with what we saw last week. Uh, Even though Jesus is withdrawn, the crowds are still bringing to him those who need healing, and he's still healing. Now, what we see here is a demon-possessed man, and that demon possession in this case is causing the maladies of blindness and inability to speak. So there's a healing aspect to this, but really what's going on here is Jesus is doing an exorcism. He's exorcising the demon, and the result is a healing, that the person who was blind and mute, the mute person can now speak and see perfectly. Now, you got to put yourself in the picture there of what's going on. That's amazing. That's absolutely stunning. I mean, all of Jesus' miracles are stunning, 
But to think of someone who's blind, they can't see, everyone knows they can't see, and the mute, they can't talk at all. And then all of a sudden, instantly, decisively, Jesus removes the demon, and then now all of a sudden they're, they're speaking and they're seeing. I mean, imagine how that person feels who's been healed, but also the people looking on. And that's exactly what the text says in verse 23. All the crowds, remember the crowds are still around. And like we've said, we've kind of characterized the crowds as they're, the neutral, they're sort of a neutral territory. You've got the committed disciples on one end of the spectrum. You've got the Pharisees who are now seeking to destroy them. The crowds are somewhere in the middle. What are they going to do? They're coming to Jesus. They want healings. And Jesus is being very compassionate and kind towards them. He's not breaking the broken reed, the crushed reed. He's not snuffing out the smoldering wick. But notice the reaction of the crowds. The crowds were utterly amazed. This, is, this word sometimes means you're out of your senses. So this is, they are kind of blown away by this. When they see this demon-possessed man healed, and he's speaking, and he's seeing, and they're absolutely amazed. And notice what it leads them to, and you might be saying about time, um, and they were saying, this one can't be the son of David, can it? The way they ask this question, it, it, it still communicates a great deal of doubt, but at least uh, it's a genuine question. Um, Boy, this guy is doing a lot of what the Messiah is supposed to do. Uh, you can kind of think back even to John the Baptist, right? And he's like, are you the one to come? And what does Jesus do? He goes off down the list of the things that he has done. And the, the crowds see the things that Jesus is doing, especially in making a blind person see and a mute person speak. And the crowds are finally at the point, they've never been at this point before, this one can't be the son of David, can it? They're like, what, what, why don't they get it? Well, remember, part of their expectation of the Messiah is a military political ruler, and the Messiah is that. I don't want to, the Messiah is a military and political ruler. He's going to be the king of the world. There's doesn't get any more political than that. But they only thought of him as a political and military ruler, not as one who was going to be that one who would not break a crushed reed or stuff out a smoldering wick. He, he wasn't necessarily, they'd forgotten or didn't recognize that he was going to be the one to die in behalf of his people's sins to rescue them from exile. They didn't think of him as needing to deal first and foremost with the issues of the heart. And so because their conception doesn't match what Jesus is doing, they've just like, well, this, this guy's great, but is it, this one can't be the son of David, can he? And what's significant here is how the Pharisees jump on this. Now, remember, the Pharisees, they don't have a necessarily an official position, but they are well-respected interpreters of the law among the people. They are the recognized leaders of the religious community, by and large. And we already know their intentions as of verse 14, but notice they're here again and what they do. Now, the Pharisees, after hearing, so they're hearing what the crowds are saying, this one can't be the son of David, can it? And son of David is a loaded messianic term. It hasn't been used that much in the gospel of Matthew. Matthew affirms it because you can even see that in the genealogy. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So he affirms it and it's true of Jesus, but it's a loaded term. So Jesus hasn't used it all that much, but now the crowd's saying, oh, is this the Messiah? Is this the ultimate Davidic king? And the Pharisees jump on this and say, after hearing this, they said, this one... This one right here is not casting out demons. I was like, well, of course he is. He's casting out demons right here, except by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. So notice what the Pharisees do. They, they hear what the crowd is saying, and they, they jump on this. They want to quash this because Jesus has, uh, he is, He's gone against their authority. They're ready to destroy him. So what are they really saying? He's saying, okay, yeah, he's casting out demons, yes, but he's only doing it by means of Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, actually, this isn't the first time we've seen this language before. If you remember at the end of chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man, and they say, well, he's only, he's only, he, he heals another demon-possessed man, but the guy is blind, and so a similar situation he casts out the demon, and the 
blind man and the crowds once again are kind of amazed. It's like, we've never seen anything like this. And the Pharisees say, it's only by the ruler of the demons, meaning Satan himself. And even the language of Beelzebul, that was seen in chapter 10. If you remember, in 1025, Jesus talks to his disciples. He's commissioning them and say, if they've called the ruler of the house, the master of the house, Beelzebul, how much more those of his household? And the idea is, uh, Beelzebul is this word, uh, comes uh, actually links back to the Old Testament, Baal. You guys have heard of Baal in the Old Testament. Baal Zebul, which probably means something like Baal of the exalted abode, which probably means something like master. That's what Baal means, master of the exalted abode. And Jesus is saying back in 1025, when he's talking to the disciples, is like they called the master of the house, aka the father, Beelzebul, how much more are those of his household? How much more me, the son, and the disciples, right? And so we've already kind of seen this reversal happening, but now we see it in full force. What is being said? Well, the idea is that, yeah, you've got this demon uh, in this person, but maybe if you have a more powerful spirit, maybe even the ruler of the demons, Satan, you could cast out a demon. See, they don't deny that Jesus cast the demon out. They just argue, well, yeah, he cast it out, but he's doing it only by the power of Satan. He's only doing it by the power of Satan. He's saying, they're saying that Jesus is aligned with Satan, and the head of his house is Satan. Do you see how reversed and twisted this is? And what you have to understand is what, what, what Jesus is doing, what is happening here in this episode is connected with what we just saw in Matthew quoting Isaiah 42. What is Jesus doing? His ministry is empowered by the Holy Spirit. From the baptism, we saw that, that at the baptism, the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove, and his whole ministry is empowered by the Spirit. And even what we saw last week in Isaiah 42, what is the servant doing? What is the Messiah doing? He's coming to bring justice, total justice, total equity to the earth by the Spirit, by the power of the Spirit. And part of him bringing justice to the world is him bringing justice over the evil domain. You see, in Isaiah, the picture is that the servant is going, and God, through the servant, is going to have victory over the idols. And in the biblical world, behind every false idol, behind every false god, is an evil demonic source and force. And so what Jesus is doing, even as he is going through and doing what he is doing, he is, through the Spirit, doing part of what the servant's mission is doing and bringing justice, defeating these false gods and the spirits behind them. And instead, the Pharisees attribute this to actually satanic influence, satanic work. That is a serious, serious charge. They're essentially accusing him of being a sorcerer, uh, of being a sorcerer, which involves, if it were sustained, the charge would mean capital punishment. It would mean stoning. It would mean death, which is exactly their aim in 12.14. They want to kill him. So let's bring a charge against him as a sorcerer. And in fact, this charge outlives Jesus, or I should say it outlives his ascension into heaven, because in Matthew's time, in the first century, in the second century, and even on, the Jews accused Christians and accused Jesus of being a sorcerer and doing these things by the power of Satan. And so Matthew even includes this. He says, all right, you guys are being accused of this. Let me tell you how Jesus dealt with this situation, which leads, all the healing and the discussion up to this point leads to verse 25, and Jesus talks the rest of the time. The rest of this passage is Jesus talking. And notice what happens. Verse 25, now after knowing their considerations... So now remember what the Pharisees just did. The, the crowds are saying, hey, this can't be the son of David, can it? This can't be the Messiah, can it? And they step on that and say, no, uh, this guy is only doing this by the power of Satan, by the power of Beelzebul. Jesus, of course, hears that, and he knows their considerations behind it. Why are they doing this? They want to destroy him. They, he knows this. He knows it's being spoken about him. He knows their considerations, and he responds. 
And the way Jesus responds, he responds in really two parts, which kind of forms our outline. He responds first by defense and then by offense. He, forms, he responds first by defense and then by offense. He said to them. Now, who's the them? Pharisees. Everything Jesus says from verse 25 through 37 is directed to the Pharisees who just gave this outlandish charge. And he's going to talk to them. And he's going to talk to them at length. And what you need to see and understand is that this is very, what Jesus does is very, very merciful. It's inherently merciful for Jesus to take this kind of time and effort to speak to these opponents and to reason with them is merciful. And it's for their good and for their benefit. And you will see that as we go through. So Jesus responds, and he responds first with some defense. Every kingdom divided against itself is being laid waste. Okay, so what's the idea? This is common knowledge kind of stuff. Uh, if you have a kingdom, a domain, and a rulership, and internal in that kingdom there is strife, there is division that is laced throughout it, well, there's internal instability. And either through civil war or through an external force capitalizing on that, that kingdom is not going to last. It can't. It's internally weak and divided, and so it's going to be laid waste, either through civil war or through external a force coming in saying, hey, they're ripe for the plucking. We're going, to lay them, we're going to lay them waste as a kingdom. And he says, okay, we know that's true of a kingdom. Let's even break it down even further. Every city. So now we're dealing with a smaller uh, a city-state, just a city. Or even let's break it down even further. Or household being divided against itself, it cannot stand. You look at a city, and if it's, there's internal conflict and division, you look at a household, there's internal conflict and division, it can't stand long-term. It'll be broken up. It can't stand. Now, that's just general truth. And notice how Jesus applies it to his situation. Verse 26, and if Satan is casting out Satan. So what's the idea? Well, the demons are aligned with Satan. So you could call them by Satan's name, right? Satan's the ruler of the demons. They're aligned with Satan. And so the idea is, well, if you're saying that by the ruler of the demons, by Satan, I'm casting out Satan, you know, I'm casting out these demons. So Satan, the ruler, is casting out these demons, that's what the Pharisees are accusing him of. Well, it means that he's divided against himself, right? The ruler in the kingdom doesn't in intentionally create divisions in his kingdom and create division because then the kingdom isn't going to stand. Now, the way, um, and, and notice how Jesus says this, right? If he's divided against himself, how therefore can his kingdom, that's Satan's kingdom, stand? Now, here's the biblical reality and the biblical worldview. We've already actually seen it in Matthew 4 when Jesus was being tempted by Satan. After the fall, the world and its people and its systems are under Satan's dominion. It's Satan's kingdom, which continues till today. It's not ultimately going to be Satan's kingdom. God is planning to restore all things. He's planning to restore justice to the world through his servant, but it's Satan's kingdom, even, and, you, and Jesus implicitly acknowledges it here. He acknowledges it in the temptation that, that Satan, right? If you will bow down and worship me, I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. Governments, policies, people, all inherently under Satan's rule and dupes of Satan. That's the reality. Now, we hear that as Westerners, and we're like, ah, supernatural stuff. Let's, uh, there's got to be a scientific explanation for all of that. We don't like hearing about the reality of spiritual forces at work in the world, and yet it's true because the Bible affirms that it's true. And Satan wins when we don't recognize that he is the ruler of this world and the world systems. He wins. So just acknowledge that as we walk through this. And Jesus' part in it is he's saying, look, you all can see that Satan's kingdom is standing. Look, I just cast out a demon. There's lots of demons in your, your area. Uh, we can see Satan's dominion. It's not crumbling. It's standing. 
So it can't be divided against itself. And it would be divided against itself if I, by Satan, was casting out Satan. But it's clearly not divided because it would be crumbling, and it's clearly not crumbling. That's his defense number one. Your charge is absurd because Satan kingdom is still standing. He's not going to divide against himself. So your charge that I'm casting out Satan by Satan is absurd. That's his first defense. But he gives more. He gives more defenses. Defense number two, verse 27. And if I, by Beelzebul, am casting out demons... By whom are your sons casting them out? Now, what does he mean by your sons? Uh, this, it could literally mean the, uh, the Pharisees' sons, but more likely, uh, sometimes in a, um, especially in a Hebrew way, you would say sons of someone to talk about a category. Um, so it, it, earlier in Matthew, it talks about the sons of the kingdom. What's it talking about? It's talking about citizens of the kingdom. That's what it's talking about. So similarly here, probably what's going on is he's talking about disciples of the Pharisees or those aligned with the Pharisees. And it's well known in the first century and even centuries prior and after that Jewish exorcism was a thing. Uh, it happened. You can even look in Acts. Remember the seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva? Right? And they're going around and they're casting out demons. Well, that happened, and we have other extra-biblical sources that indicate that, yeah, around the time of Jesus, exorcisms are happening. Apparently, some of them are successful, although some of what they're doing was very weird, like just weird stuff that they were doing to try to get the um, successful exorcisms. So what's Jesus' point? He's saying, all right, I, if you're accusing, let's assume for the sake of argument that I did cast out demons by Beelzebul. Well, what about your disciples? What about the other Jewish exorcists? You're not accusing them of being aligned with Satan, are you? Essentially, the argument is you have a double standard. You have a double standard. You're not accusing other exorcists of being aligned with Satan. So why are you accusing me? You have a double standard. And that's why he says, on account of this, they, that's the sons, that's the other exorcists, they will be your judges. Let's call, let's call the other exorcists in, and let's have them judge between you and me. Because you're not accusing them of being aligned with Satan, so why are you accusing me? That's his second defense. First, your you know, defense is absurd because Satan can't be divided against himself. Second, you're using a double standard. Third, and this one is kind of a culminating a defense because not only is Jesus defending himself, but what's he doing? In mercy, he's trying to draw the Pharisees' attention to the true state of affairs. Verse 28, but in contrast to that, if I, by the Spirit of God, am casting out demons, then the kingdom of God has overtaken you. Now, what's he mean? Uh, we've already talked about, linked with what we saw in Isaiah, that the Messiah's ministry is empowered by the Spirit of God. What is the Messiah, the servant of Isaiah, supposed to do? He's supposed to bring justice to the world, justice to the nations. And so if he's going to bring justice to the world and to the nations, he's got to deal with demonic. He's got to deal with Satan's kingdom. It's a kingdom battle. It's a kingdom battle. Even what Jesus is doing, what's the message of the kingdom been? Repent for the kingdom of heaven has draw near. How is it draw near? In the person of Jesus the King and in the kingdom foretastes of his powerful miracles, empowered by the Spirit of God. And what he's telling the Pharisees, he says, look, the only alternative, if it's not by Satan that I'm doing these things, and that's absurd, that I'm doing it by the Spirit of God. And if I'm doing it by the Spirit of God, I'm showing I'm the, the servant from Isaiah, I'm showing I'm the Messiah, and I'm showing that the King of God has overtaken you, meaning it's right there in front of you, in my person and in what I am doing. Doesn't mean the kingdom's fully there yet, but it's there in measure. Jesus is giving kingdom foretaste. Jesus is going to rid the world of every demonic influence, and not just demonic influence, of sickness, of disease, of injustice, of all of these things. And Jesus is showing through what he is doing kingdom's right here. You're missing it. So you can see Jesus is not only defending himself, it's by the Spirit of God, but he's also at the same time doing what? He's talking to the Pharisees and he's saying, look guys, what you just said was absurd, but let me 
let me try to draw you into what the true state of affairs is. That the kingdom's here, then I'm the king, and the Spirit of God is empowering me. It's right here. It's right here in front of you. And he even builds on it a little bit more in verse 29. He just kind of looks at it from a different angle. Or, how is someone able to enter into the house of the strong man and his vessels or his possessions to plunder if he does not first bind the strong man? And then his house he will thoroughly plunder. What's the picture? Well, you've got a well-defended house. You can kind of think of, in our day's terms, it would be like someone waiting in cleaning the shotgun on the front porch, right? You got the, sh- the, 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 uh, the strong man. He's, he knows his stuff, right? He's a well-defended house. So if you're a thief and you want to plunder the house, what do you got to do? You got you to deal with the strong man. You got to deal with him. You got to bind him. You got to incapacitate him in some measure so that you can thoroughly plunder all of his goodies, all of his stuff. There's a little picture. What's, what's it correspond to in reality? The strong man is Satan, Guarding his domain, his house, the kingdom of the world. His possessions are people. People are normal, uh, naturally aligned to him. Everyone is born aligned to him. And he can oppress them as he will and possess them as he will, as his instruments and his possessions. And the only way out of that situation is if you've got a stronger man than the strong man to come and incapacitate Satan, namely Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, so that he can, what, plunder Satan's house, meaning release people from the demons, things like demon possession, and even more than that, call them to repentance and transference from the kingdom of darkness to the king, his kingdom. That's the imagery. And so what is Jesus using it for? He's saying, look, the only way that Satan's uh, demons are going to get cast out is if there's a stronger one. And I'm the stronger one. The Spirit's the stronger one. The Spirit's empowering my ministry to do this. So the kingdom is here. It's right in front of your face. Not here in fullness yet, but in measure it's here. It's right in front of your face. Again, what is Jesus doing? He's not only defending himself, but he's trying to draw the Pharisees in and to see the true state of affairs for their good. And he's also, Matthew, as he records this, he's giving ammo to his own audience because, like I said, the same charges of Jesus being a sorcerer, of even Christians empowered by the Spirit being sorcerers, was still present. And essentially, this argument dispels all of those charges. Let's put it in terms of our own, our own day. We like, people like to excuse Jesus. They don't like to think of him as the Messiah, as God the Son incarnate. So what do we do to excuse Jesus? What do we, where do we place him? We may not call him a sorcerer, but, well, he's a nice teacher. Or maybe he's a deceiver. Maybe he just deceived people. Or maybe he was something like a magician. You can't excuse Jesus on any of those terms. It doesn't make any sense. It's absurd. His ministry was empowered by the Holy Spirit. We can see that. And he clearly conquered evil in multiple forms. Do you think of Jesus in any lesser terms than as the Spirit-empowered King who will overturn evil and reclaim the world? Do you think of Jesus in any lesser terms than as the Spirit-empowered King who will overturn evil and reclaim the world because that's who Jesus is and if you think less of him than that who are you aligned with to think less of Jesus than who he really is as the spirit and coward king who will overturn sin in the world is absurd and along with this even as we see in this episode the world, do you recognize that the world is under the control of Satan? We don't like to hear that. We don't like to think of that. Ah, it sounds mystical. Well, friends, it's true. Satan can use any number of things. He can use technology. He can use science. He can use any number of things. All he has to do to win is to deceive. Doesn't have to do it in a flashy way. Doesn't have to demon possess people. 
And Satan is very active in our world. You need to know that. You need to know that. It is his kingdom, as Jesus acknowledges in this passage, the world is his kingdom until Jesus comes and binds Satan and finishes the overthrow of his kingdom, which we see in Revelation 20. Bound Satan for a thousand years, and then he's released for a little bit, then he's destroyed, and then the final and full establishment of justice in the world, the full and final establishment of God's kingdom comes. Until then, it's Satan's world. Now, if you're in Christ, then the Spirit of Christ is also in you, and you have nothing to fear. As the Apostle John says, the one who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So even though it's Satan's world, and even though we are in Christ, and his full kingdom hasn't come yet, that could be very scary unless you remember the Spirit of God who drives out demons is in you, and you have nothing to fear. If you're not in Christ, then friend, you are a possession of Satan. Oh, you may not be demon-possessed, but you are aligned with the ruler of this world. You are in his kingdom. You are a dupe, one way or the other. You're like, no, 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 no. No, I, I, I'm, my own, I'm the captain of my own destiny. No one's controlling me. That's exactly what Satan wants you to think. And as long as you go on thinking that, you're his possession. And the only way to be rescued from that is by the stronger man, by Jesus plundering people from the grasp of Satan, the citizens of his kingdom, to bring them into his own kingdom. You're enslaved one way or the other. You're either enslaved to the father of lies or you're enslaved to Jesus. And it's only through, how do you, how do you transfer? Well, one, it's by the Spirit of God working. You can't, that's ultimately God's work, right? We read in, uh, remember Jesus called at the end of Matthew 11, come to me because only those who see the Son, that comes from the Father. So God has to work first, but then what is the human response? Repent repent. Change your allegiance from sin and self and entrust yourself to Jesus the King, the one who will die in your place, the one who has died in your place if you will believe in him, the suffering servant from Isaiah who dies for his people to plunder the evil one and to bring them out into his own kingdom. Jesus isn't aligned with Satan. This the Spirit empowering him is the Holy Spirit, and he's the only hope for our world and for rescue. So we've seen first that the Spirit empowering Jesus is clearly holy, not satanic. That's Jesus' defense. Now Jesus goes on offense. So he just defended himself against this absurd charge, and then he goes on offense, verses 30 through 37. And the main idea in this section is this, beware that your speech proves your alignment with good or evil. Beware that your speech proves your alignment with good or evil. Verse 30, Jesus switches gears and he says this, whoever is not with me is against me. Now, what is he talking about? And remember, he's still talking to the Pharisees. He's still talking to the Pharisees. Whoever is not with me is against me. He's talking about discipleship. What does it mean to be with Jesus in the gospel of Matthew? It means to repent, to change your allegiance from sin and self, and to entrust yourself to Jesus and to follow him as king and lord of your life. And so if you're not a disciple, you're against Jesus. Now you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. What about the crowds? Because you've been saying all along, Chris, that there are the Pharisees, who are clearly and actively opposing Jesus, and then you've got the disciples who have committed to following Jesus. And you've got the crowd somewhere in the middle. We don't know where their allegiances lie. Well, I've been saying we don't know where their allegiances lie, but anyone outside of a disciple, even if they're not in an active opposition like the Pharisees, Jesus is saying they're still against me. Now, Jesus still might do them good and kindness, to draw them. He's not going to snap that crushed reed. He's not going to extinguish that fainting, that, that smoldering wick. But what did he condemn the cities for in Matthew 11? 
He did all these mighty works in these cities, and what did he condemn them for? They did not repent. And we talked there, what does it take to not repent? Nothing. Just keep going the way you're going. You don't have to be a Pharisee. But if you don't repent, you're, an active oppos- you're ultimately in opposition to Jesus. So Jesus is drawing a clear line in the sand. You're either with me or you're against me. And he's trying to do this with the Pharisees because he's trying to wake them up, right? They are active opponents against him, but he's trying to say, you're not with me, you're against me. And then he goes on and says something something slightly different. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now, what's his language of gathering and scattering? So uh, both verbs, uh, they indicate someone gathering either something like crops. So it's been used this way in Matthew before gathering crops or gathering people, and scattering is just the reverse of that. So someone's scattering something. Well, remember the language, and and even more than that, the language of gathering and scattering is used in the Old Testament of God gathering his people back from exile where they were scattered before. Ezekiel 34. Remember Ezekiel 34? And it talked about Uh, Israel scattered like lost sheep on the mountains because of bad shepherds. And so we saw at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is like, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And then he sends his disciples to gather the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So what is Jesus saying? He's talking to the Pharisees who are the purported shepherds of Israel. And he says, If you're not with me, so the idea is someone repents and becomes a disciple, they become what? Fishers of men. They join in the mission of gathering people to Jesus. And if you're not participating with me in gathering people under Jesus' shepherding rule as the Messiah, then you're a scatterer. You're either helping Jesus gather people to him as the shepherd, or you're scattering. And he's talking to the Pharisees and says, look, you're you're purported shepherds of Israel. Well, if you're not with me, you're scattering people, and you're actually the people I'm opposing in Ezekiel 34. You're not with me, you're against me. If you're not gathering with me, you're not engaging in this mission of gathering people to me, then you're actually a scatterer and my enemy. What's he doing? He's now implicitly calling the Pharisees, isn't he? What's he saying? Gather with me. Join me. Be with me. Become a disciple. And then he draws an implication on this. And this is, this is where the rest of the section we see a great deal of warning. On account of this, because there's only two sides, and whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever is not gathering with me is scattering, on account of that, I am saying to you, Pharisees, Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Now, just pause right there. Think of what Jesus just said. Isn't that amazing? Every sin and blasphemy. Now, what is blasphemy? Blasphemy is slander. That's what blasphemy is. It's slander. It's an intentional it's an intentional speaking against someone to demean them. Now, that can happen on a human level. It can also happen on the level of God. That's what we mean when we blaspheme God. You're speaking against God in an intentional and decisive way to bring God dishonor. Right? That's what blasphemy is. Uh, it could also happen via actions. You do something intentionally in action that you know is against God to bring him dishonor. So blasphemy, you're slandering either another person or you're slandering God with your actions or your words. And Jesus says every sin and blasphemy, every sin and slander will be forgiven people. They're like, well, what about repentance? That's implied, right? Because that's been Jesus' call throughout the whole book. But what is he saying? If you repent, doesn't matter what the sin is? Doesn't matter what the slander is? It will be forgiven. Friends, before we go on, you have to recognize that is incredible. 
And if you're sitting here this morning, you're like, I can't come, I'm too filthy. Jesus says you're not. Now, there's an exception, and we'll talk about it in a, uh, in a minute, but, but you're not. You come and you repent and you trust yourself to Jesus, it will be forgiven. It's a promise by Jesus, and you need to see that. Now, there is an exception, and we'll talk about this. So what does he say? But the slander, the blasphemy against the Spirit or of the Spirit will not be forgiven. There is a sin that won't be forgiven, and it's called blasphemy of the Spirit, slander of the Spirit. And then he reinforces it in verse 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man. Now, the Son of Man, remember it's that, I, that Daniel figure, the exalted one. He's divine and human. He's Jesus. We know Jesus identifies himself with them. He's saying, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. So Jesus narrows it down. It's not just any blasphemy, but let's even make it more specific. Speaking against Jesus, speaking against the Son of Man, that'll be forgiven. But... Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven to him, neither in this age or in the one coming. Now, what's that language? Uh, the, the biblical conception of the world, and you can see this through the New Testament, is that you're either in this age, meaning this evil age where Satan is still the ruler, or you're in the age to come where God is restoring everything and restoring the kingdom and restoring all of creation. Really, Jesus is just using that language here to say never, right? Neither in this age nor in the one to come will this sin be forgiven. Speaking against the Holy Spirit. Now, why is he bringing this up? Well, remember what the Pharisees accused him of. You're casting out demons by Beelzebul, by Satan, when Jesus is actually casting out demons by the Spirit, right? That's where Jesus is saying, Look, you just accuse me of something that if you understood what you were accusing me of is the worst sort of blasphemy that you could think of. And we can understand and can see from the situation, what is blasphemy of the Spirit? What is slander of the Spirit? Well, we can see from the situation that it's this. The slander against the Spirit, the blasphemy against the Spirit would be a situation where an unregenerate, an unsaved, an unbeliever person would witness what is undeniably the work of the Spirit and would intentionally and callously slander the Spirit's work and attribute, attribute it to Satan or to evil. You see, slander is always intentional. It's always intentional. Slander is always, I don't like that person or I don't like God, and so I'm going to speak intentionally against God. So let me say that again. The slander or the blasphemy against the Spirit would be a situation where an unregenerate, an unsaved, an unbelieving person would witness what is undeniably the work of the Spirit, like Jesus' works, and would intentionally and callously, the Pharisees are pretty hardened in what they're doing, intentionally and callously slander the Spirit's work and attribute it to Satan and to evil. It's a complete role reversal, complete worldview reversal. Multiple questions flood to your minds, or maybe you've had them before. Let's ask a few. Why is such a sin unforgivable when evidently blasphemy against the Father and the Son is forgivable? Blasphemy against the Father and the Son is forgivable, but not the Spirit. Why? I think the best answer is when you look at the, 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 the Scripture's witness, even in the Old Testament, the Spirit is the one who regenerates people. The Spirit is the one who enlivens a heart and enables them to believe. So if you're a unbeliever, and you understand the work of the Spirit, and you intentionally slander and stand against the Spirit, well, there's no one to apply redemption to you. You've just put yourself out of the only person who would apply Christ's redemption to you. 
Even if you spoke against the Father or the Son, the Spirit could still work in your heart. That's the amazing part. He could still work in your heart and regenerate you and save you. So that's a why of why it's unforgivable. Here's another question that not a lot of people answer, uh, ask, at least not commentators. Had the Pharisees actually committed this sin? Had the Pharisees actually committed this sin? And I would argue no. A lot of commentators will just say, yeah, of course they did. That's why Jesus is accusing it. Jesus nowhere explicitly says that they have committed this sin. In fact, everything he said is stated in third person. Every sin and blasphemy against the Spirit will, or every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. In fact, his whole tenor of this, him speaking to the Pharisees, he's speaking to the Pharisees at length, and he's actually still calling into repentance, isn't he? You're not going to do that if someone just committed the unforgivable sin. It's a waste of time. Instead, if you look back to what the Pharisees did, their accusation was directed against Jesus. Their slander was directed against Jesus and saying, yeah, you're empowered by, this, um, by Satan. Did they intentionally slander the Spirit? No. Slander has to be intentional. What is Jesus doing then? He's warning them. You guys are this close. You guys are this close to committing an unforgivable sin. So don't do that. Gather with me. Don't be a scatterer. It's a call. It's a warning. It's a warning that Jesus is using to draw even a hard-hearted opponent back. It's his mercy. They were close. So Jesus is warning them and calling them to join him. Third question. This is the one that everyone wants to answer. Is it possible to commit this sin still? And I would say and argue yes. Now, before we go on, let me reread that language. What do I think, based on the context, the blasphemy against the Spirit is? The slander against the Spirit would be a situation where an unregenerate, this is a sin that only an unregenerate, unsaved person can commit, like the Pharisees. You can't commit this sin if you're a believer. The slander against the Spirit will be a situation where an unregenerate person would witness what is undeniably the work of the Spirit and would intentionally and callously slander the Spirit's work and attribute it to Satan or evil. Well, the question then is, if that's what it is, can, you still, can those conditions still exist where that can happen? And I would argue yes. I can even argue from Matthew that it's still possible. Remember in chapter 10, Jesus gives to the 12, he gives to the 12 the authority to cast out demons, doesn't he? And then he says, and he says, go, go do it. Now, this is to the 12, I grant you, right? It's not to every single Christian, but it's to the, to the 12. But then what does he later say in verse 25? If they've called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more are those of his household? In other words, Jesus is thinking of a situation where I'm being accused of doing this by Beelzebul. You guys are going to be accused by doing it of Beelzebul, which historically happened. And if you did that in a hardened and callous way where you knew there's only one explanation, it's by the Spirit of God, but for your own purposes and reasons, you say, no, that's not the Spirit, that is evil, then you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and you're not going to be forgiven. And you could think of situations even historically where the Spirit is active, and he's undeniably active, and, and then someone who is an unbeliever intentionally and callously ascribes the Spirit's work to Satan and to evil, well, then the same conditions exist. But the call of this passage is not try to discern whether you've committed the unforgivable sin. That's never the call. The call is to repent. The call is always to repent. See, someone who would commit this sin is hardened, they're calloused, and they have no desire to repent. So if you have a desire to repent, that means you haven't committed it. Or to put it another way, if you're concerned, and people are, I, I mean, I, I, this is a big deal. People ask about this all the time. If you're concerned you've committed it, you haven't committed it. Because no one who has a desire to repent has committed this, because this is a hardened, callous slander against the Spirit. The call is to repent. Now, let me say this. 
you can still be eternally lost without having committed the unforgivable sin, can't you? So just because you haven't committed the unforgivable sin does not mean that you are not going to be internally lost unless you repent. What Jesus is saying, you commit that sin, the door is absolutely closed. But the door is open for absolutely everything else. But you need to repent. You need to repent. Maybe you're not a high-handed opposition to Jesus, but maybe you're just a casual, kind of like, yeah, I'm just going to live my own life and do my own thing. Well, that'll still damn you eternally, friend, unless you repent. And Jesus has the ability through his work on the cross to forgive every sin and blasphemy. And that's what he's doing for the Pharisees. They're hardened. They're really close to committing this unforgivable sin. And what is he doing? He's calling them to repent. Don't keep going that way. Repent and come to me. And then he goes on to this issue of speech. Blasphemy is a, is a type of speech. It's slander is a type of speech. And so he goes on in verse 33, and he builds this. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree rotten and its fruit rotten. We saw this in Matthew 7, right? Uh, it's a simple idea. Um, the fruit demonstrates the reality, the nature of the tree, for from the fruit, the tree will be known. The tree is known, right? You want to know, is the tree good? Does it have a disease? Is, it, is, is there a problem with it? Well, how's the fruit? Is it rotten? Is it bad? Is it good? If it's bad, then it's a bad tree. If it's good, it's a good tree. And then what does he say? He does condemn them. It's not like Jesus is not condemning the Pharisees. He's saying, verse 34, offsprings of vipers, which is the same language that John the Baptist used in John, uh, Matthew 3, how are you able to speak good things being evil? So he's, he's not pulling any punches. You guys are evil. You're aligned with Satan. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. You're not able to speak good, right? What are they accusing him of? They're using, their accusation is speech that shows that they are evil. For from the abundance of the heart, the mouth is speaking, which is a general principle. Isn't it true that Boy, we have a hard time zipping our mouths when we have something we really want to say, right? And so you, something comes out, it flows out of your mouth. Where did that come from? It came from your heart. It came from your internal desires, and it shows your nature. And what Jesus is saying is it shows that the Pharisees, their slander against him, their slander against him shows their nature. It shows that, they're, he, um, that they are evil, he continues with different metaphors. Uh, verse 35, the good person from his good treasure is casting out good things. And the evil person from his evil treasure is casting out evil things. You're a good person, you spend money well and for good things and for good purposes. You're a bad person, you spend money for evil purposes and evil things. It's a similar principle. What are you spending money on? What are you spending your words on? It shows who you are. It shows your fundamental reality. And so Jesus draws his argument to a close in verse 36 and 37. But I am saying to you, Pharisees, that every useless word which people are speaking, will give, they'll give a reckoning for it on the day of judgment. What's he talking about? What's a, what's a useless word? Like, just useless throwaway speech. We might say throwaway speech or throwaway words, right? We're just, just nothing words, right? Useless words, insignificant words, careless words, maybe you could say. And he's saying, Pharisees, every careless word, even the most mundane careless word or useless word you could speak, you're going to have to give a reckoning for that on the day of judgment because your words show who you are. Your words show who you're aligned with. And so God's going to judge you on your words, even the most mundane words, even the most insignificant words, because God owns your words. They're his property, and you're to use them as he would want you to. Verse 37, for from your words you will be vindicated, and from your words you will be condemned. That's what Jesus, who will be the judge on Judgment Day, is saying. 
the judge is giving you the clue as to how is he going to judge? Well, one of the things that Jesus on judgment day is going to judge you by is how do you use your words? Ouch. And the Pharisees are using it to slander and to destroy. And Jesus is warning them. He's shaking them by the shoulder saying, wake up, Pharisees. Your speech shows your reality. Don't stay there. Repent. I will forgive you even these sins, but only if you repent and trust yourself to me, follow me as king, as a disciple. So as we think about this section, a sobering section, let's think first about the work of the Spirit. You see here in the, God's church the work of the Spirit among Christ's people. You see love joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, right? You see love, joy, peace, patience. So you see Christ's work. What is your response to the Spirit's work among his people? Maybe it's not as clear as the miracles that Jesus was doing, but you still see the Spirit's work, and you're accountable to that. Beware of a hardened rejection ascribing the Spirit's work to evil. You see people in the world saying, those Christians are just evil, evil people, right? I don't know what's at work among them, but it must be no good, right? You see that kind of hardened, callous rejection. Beware. Are you joining with Christ in his mission or not? If not, if you're not joining with Christ, you may not be as high-handed as the Pharisees, but you're still opposing him. Jesus says there's no middle ground, so join him. That's what he wants. He desires, come to me. What does your speech show about who you are? You will be judged by your most insignificant statements. Is your speech demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? Galatians 5. Is your speech demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit or the works of the flesh? Do you slander others? Do you gossip behind other people's backs? Does your speech build up or does it tear down? How's your social media speech? Jesus says that he's going to judge based on every useless word. Well, a lot of the words on Facebook, etc., are pretty useless. So how is your social media speech? God will judge you even on your social media posts. Now, that's a scary thought, isn't it? If your speech, now here's the thing, if your speech is not good, what's the call? Repent, because Jesus can forgive every sin and blasphemy because he is that person. He is the stronger one. If your speech is not good, repent. Make it right. If you've done something wrong against someone else, make it right Speech is not good. Repent and labor under the power of the Holy Spirit for good speech. You see, the reality is that the Holy Spirit transforms us, and it transforms our speech so that where before we would only slander or speak bad or talk behind other people's backs or gossip or what have you, that the Spirit changes us so that we speak good, we speak to build up, we speak to love, we speak the truth in love. And that is the amazing thing that trusting yourself to Christ, he can forgive your speech, your evil speech. And not only are you counted righteous, you're counted as if you had pure speech all the days of your life through Christ, because that's who Christ was with his speech. But he transforms your speech to build up others, to care for others, to love others. Every sin and slander will be forgiven you if you repent and entrust yourself to Christ. So beware of slandering God by not aligning with Jesus as the Spirit-empowered King. So align with Him. Come to Him. Join with Him and join His mission in gathering His people. Let's pray. Jesus, this is sobering, uh, and especially as we think about our speech. You own our words. Help us to use your words, the words that you've given us, the voices that you have given us, to sing your praises, but Lord, let us not sing your praises, and then like James says, then curse other people. But Lord, help us to love others, to speak the truth in love, to correct, 
where we need to, to speak the truth, even when it's hard to speak where we need to. But Lord, our speech shows who we are. Help us to use our speech well. Lord, guard us from a hardened heart that would speak wicked things. Lord, soften our hearts. Spirit, uh, help us. And Lord Jesus, we long, we long for you to come and restore final justice to defeat Satan in the final iteration and to bring your kingdom and to rule over the world. Plunder the strong man, O Lord God. And rescue even in our community, uh, with those around us that we interact with, plunder more kingdom citizens for your great name's sake, we ask. We love you, Jesus, and we pray that we would even be kind, even when we have to be firm, uh, as you were firm with the Pharisees, but you were still kind in calling them to repentance. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the magnitude of your work on the cross, that you've forgiven every sin and blasphemy, except the slander of the Spirit, but we thank you for every other thing that you've died for, and we praise you and give you great praise and thanks. Thank you for this morning. Be with us as we go. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.